we'll get started. We got a lot to talk about today because this is uh, one of those passages. So, morning got you all riled up. No, no, but there's a lot of background that helps with this passage um, because this is a standard passage. We 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 do this all the time with the kids. You've heard it a hundred thousand times in church. Um, but I think we misunderstand it more often than not. If you haven't looked at the board and figured it out, we're in Mark chapter 6, um, verses 30 through 44. What's the passage? Jesus feeds the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. Um, so this is session four. Jesus satisfies. Jesus, Jesus satisfies by providing for our needs. Um, and we'll be in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And it is the feeding of the 5,000, which, you know, it's a pretty simple passage. But there's a, a lot of background um, to it in order to draw the conclusions that we should be drawing for it. Last week we were in chapter 3. So we're going to jump three chapters to get where we're at today. So let's see what was in the chapters that we are not going to study. Although I'm going to make comment about them anyway. Because I just can't help myself. I don't know. I guess it's a good thing. So in chapter 4, there are a few things that happen in chapter 4. It's not a long chapter, but man is it jam-packed. Uh, Jesus is going to do the parable of the sower. He's going to tell that. Then he's going to tell the parable about hiding a lamp under a basket. And then he's going to tell the parable about the seed growing. And then he's going to tell the parable of the mustard seed. And then to top it all off, he's going to go and he's going to get in the boat and fall asleep in a storm. And everybody's going to be unhappy about it. He's going to wake up and calm the storm and really surprise everybody as he has power over the weather. All of that's packed into one chapter. But it also covers several weeks of time. As Mark is writing this story, Jesus, they went and they were going from town to town preaching and teaching. Well, these are the things he was teaching. And as they come to the close of that time of him going place to place to place, teaching and preaching, uh, they cross the lake and... Um, the storm comes up. Then we move on to chapter 5. Again, another short chapter, not very long. But they go across the sea, and I'll put a map up in a second and show you um, all that. But they're going to go across the sea, and they're really actually just in the edge of what would be Jewish air territory. Um, they're actually in an area, the city there, which Jesus doesn't actually go to. Um, is a Greek city. It's part of the Decapolis, the ten cities. It was a, an area that was made up of ten cities, and it was it was Gentile area. And this is where he runs into the demoniac, and he casts the demons into the pigs. We're all familiar with that story, right? I think it's just a cool, cool story. It is a cool story. You know what? I was there. We were, we were on the bank where that takes place. Yeah. I'll show you pictures in a second. You didn't jump off like No, I didn't, I, I didn't jump into the water. Um, but they, he does this. So 
He crosses the ocean, he crosses the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, comes the storm, gets there, gets out, is walking to town, and as he's going through the area with all the tombs, he's assaulted by this, well, he's not assaulted by this demon, you know how it is. They just can't help but come out and bow to him because they know who he is. And uh, he cast out the demons that were in this guy. Apparently it was a legion of demons. And they go into the pigs and all that. The people come out of the city. They're unhappy because now all the pigs are dead. <laughs> well, that was, the, that was, you know. Their income. The, their income, yeah. So he doesn't go to the city. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't preach anything. He just gets back in the boat and leaves. Goes back to the Jewish towns. And that's where he wanders. He's called to go to Jairus' daughter's house to deal with that. And the woman is healed with the issue of blood. She just reached out and touched him while he was in the street. Um, another great story, but we don't have time to go into it, so I won't. Um, and then he goes on, and he gets to Jairus' house. The daughter's dead. Don't bother the master. Leave. And what does Jesus do? Now let me see her. Kicks everybody out. And he raises her from the dead. All I had chapter five. We've jumped from chapter three to chapter five, and all of this has taken place. This is months. All right, this is several months of time. Mark doesn't mark any time for us. And if you read this and think that this is just happening like one day after the next, man, that would be brutal. <laughs> all right, real quick, let's look at a map. You've got this map in your booklets. You can look at it. Um, so here's Capernaum. He works in Capernaum, and we know that he's touring the towns and villages in Galilee, all of them here. And then he's going to sail across the sea, and somewhere out here is where the storm happens. And he's going to get to Geressa, which is where the whole incident with the pigs takes place. All right? Now, when, we were, when I was in Israel, we took the bus and we drove down there. And the only location that they have is this. This mound is full of caves, which were the tombs. And uh, this is a video, so I'm going to play it in a second. But I'm standing with my back to the Sea of Galilee, looking up. Town would have been over here somewhere. So these are the tombs, and it would have been back up that way somewhere. And this is a very large, flat area, and then the Sea of Galilee is behind me. And the demoniacs in the, in the tomb area, Jesus meets him, and all the demons go into the pigs, which are here. They just run down this hill right into the water. It's the only spot on that side of the uh, Sea of Galilee that this could have been. Because there are no other places with tombs sitting up on a hill like this that they had found. Or an area where the pigs would have been that would have been in the area that this would have taken place where he would have been sailing. So... They're pretty sure we didn't get to go to the town, uh, which is back up that way. They've got a dig site for it and all that. But let me, uh, let me show the video. All right, so there it is. I have, I tried to zoom in to get pictures of it, but you can't really see a whole lot. You would need to climb that hill, and it's actually quite a distance. But you can see as I turn, there's the Sea of Galilee right there. It's just this flat area where the pigs would have been grazing. Anyway, so that's that's the area where the whole demoniac uh, story takes place. Ooh. Let's move on. We're going to go into chapter 6 as we look, because we're going to be at the end of chapter 6 where the feeding of the 5,000 is. 
Um, so he comes back, the whole issue with Jairus, daughter, healed or raises her from the dead. And then Jesus takes a little trip to Nazareth. All right. And once he's in Nazareth, uh, things start to, to happen. He is going to pick the apostles, the 12, and he's going to send them out. And now it's their turn. They've been traveling with him for months and heard him preach and teach and all that. We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, and I want to read this. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is what's going on. Jesus now sends them out. Now, understand, rabbis would teach, they would call their disciples at a young age, 14, middle school. Around there, they would go and they would find the brightest of the Hebrew students from every town, and they would, and they would call them, and then they would follow the rabbi probably till they're 18, 20, around college age. And at that point, he would start allowing them to do some of the teaching, but underneath of them. Now, that was after years of study, right? So 14, 18, four years maybe, maybe as many as six, that they just sit and listen to the teacher and do whatever he needs them to do, usually chores. <laughs> kind of like, uh, you know, we do today, right? Kids do chores? My kids. <laughs> Our kids. Yeah, I try. Yeah, but, they, but that's, what they, that's how they trained them. Now, the 12 apostles, how old were they? They were men. Yeah. Levi was a tax collector. He wasn't a pimply-faced high school student, right? Oh, I bet he's more than that. You don't, you don't get permission to, to collect taxes after you've done it for a while for under somebody. Uh, Peter. Peter owned his own business, right? He had more than one boat. He had a successful fishing business. Peter's probably in his 40s, maybe older. He's not, he's not young. And he's got a brother named John, whose younger brother... How much younger? Maybe in his 30s? 10 years? Maybe? Yeah, and, and, and we go down the list. None of these guys are that, they're all into their, they all had a job that they were in their profession. They weren't apprentices. They weren't these young men. And they've only been out working with Jesus now a few months, not more than a year. 
And he's sending them out on their own. Great How confidence. Great Say confidence. Again? Great confidence. Great confidence. What makes the difference between what Jesus is doing and what the rabbis do? Jesus is letting God lead them, whereas the rabbis were expecting them to follow what he said. Okay, that's true. Still one, one piece. Jesus is sinless and the rabbis aren't. Nope. There's one word in this that, that changes everything. He gave them Power. Authority. authority. They didn't have it. It wasn't based in their knowledge. It was that he gave them the power. They weren't functioning on their own as, as the rabbis did. It wasn't um, their knowledge. It wasn't their ability. It was given to them. That, that makes a huge difference. So he sends them out. They go. And then... Jesus is by himself, right? He's in Capernaum. He's ministering there. They are going out into all the little towns and villages with the message. And the ball drops. John the Baptist is beheaded. He's dead. Now remember, John the Baptist is a cousin to Jesus. They're related. He's the one that baptized Jesus. There's, there's connection here. There's a familial connection. There's a ministry connection. There was an understanding. And John the Baptist dies. Not an easy thing. And all the close associates of Jesus are gone. So now he's just surrounded by people with needs and people that want to get rid of him. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees are still there, aren't they? They're still pressing him, trying to trip him up. And, uh, yeah. Now, what I want to do... Is look at this because John the Baptist dying is one of those really strange events, and we don't usually talk about it uh, in church. So I want to cut and I'm going to cover this very quickly. And I know that there will be questions. Just hang on to them. I promise I'll ask for questions and move on because we don't teach this. Actually, I took this course um, maybe my senior year in college. And it was called Between the Testaments. And the professor that taught it was a master of the New Testament, but only because he studied between. This guy would stand in class with a Greek New Testament and teach us in English. He translated it on the fly himself, reading from Greek to English. He was that brilliant. Um, but he only taught this course once every four years. And I'm not sure that, that he taught it again after I took it, because he was... You rather mean to him. Re well, he was rather <laughs> old. No, no, Mr. Bedell, he'd been a missionary 40 years, I think, wow. in, the, in the Philippines, wow. wasn't it? Yeah, and had retired to, to teach us poor college students. <laughs> um, and so he covered what happened between the Testaments, which helps us understand what's going on in the Gospels, very particularly. So let's start off with the Maccabees. We talk about these people, and um, we don't uh, we don't know who they are. Like, why are they called Sadducees, and who are the Hasmoneans, and all, they, all these people? Well, they come from here. So the Maccabean family tree, 
is what I've got up. And uh, it starts with Mattathias, who leads the revolt against the Greeks. They wanted him, he was a priest, um, and he, they wanted him to offer sacrifice to Zeus, and he refused to do it, and he killed the commander that was demanding it, which started the result, uh, the revolt. Um, and they killed him. Well, this angered his sons. He had uh, a few sons, John, Simon, Judas, Eliezer, and Jonathan. And they were the generals of the revolt as the Jews rose up and threw off the shackles of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which were the two Greek um, peoples that would uh, do that. The Ptolemies were in Egypt, and they would come up and, and fight in Israel and take Israel. And the Seleucids were up in Syria and the, the southern part of Turkey, and they would come down and attack the Ptolemies in Jerusalem and Judea and take it. And they would fight back, forth, back, forth. These guys got fed up with it, and they raged war and drove them out. The first one to come to power was Judas, who was called Maccabeus. It was Judah the Hammer. Um, he was quite brutal in battle, and he ruled. Followed him. Oh, I didn't click it. There you go. So that's Judas Maccabeus. He wasn't the oldest. He was the third. Um, so he ruled. His brother Jonathan rules next after him for a very short time, a few years, and then he dies, and his brother Simon takes over. Simon has several sons. You can see that there's Judas, there's John Hycanus, and Mattathias. So he names one son for his brother that won the war, and one for his father. But John Icanus is the one that we uh, need to be aware of. That's where the line comes that we get the um, rulers that are the, um, no, I forgot their name. Maccabees? Uh, say again? The Sadducees. The Sadducees. This is going to be the founder because he takes up rule after his father Simon. And that's where we're going to get those guys. And then he's going to have a couple of sons. The one that were most, his son Artemis, who was the first, ruled for a few years, and then he, his brother takes over, Alexander. Actually, they don't get along. There's a lot of infighting between them. Um, and uh, he's going to marry Solome of Alexandria, or Alexandra, um, which is his granddaughter. Okay? They're, they're, they're going to marry, and then she's going to marry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to start to see a lot of this here as we do this. So his son then is Artemis II and rules for a while. Hycanus II takes over, marries, or has a child, and Solome of Alexandria then marries the, the, yeah, the grandfather. And then he dies and marries the cousin, I guess that's a cousin, Jonathan Alexander, who is the son of Artemis II, right? It's, this becomes more of a bush rather than a tree. <laughs> this is nothing, because they're going to have a child, Mir uh, Mariam. She marries Herod the Great. You ever wonder how Herod the Great ends up in charge of all this? Here it is. 
marries the great grand the yeah, the great let's see. Daughter, granddaughter, great granddaughter, great great granddaughter of the guy who makes the Hasmonean line. The Hasmoneans come through there. Wait, did that click that? Yeah. Click that. So he's a uh, He's the one that creates what we call the Hasmoneans line, the Hycanuses. That's, I guess that's like the pluralization noun form of the name. I don't know. Um, and the, the granddaughter here marries Herod the Great, which they have a couple of children. And we, we know the story of Herod the Great. But this is how. Remember, if you remember, dredge back into your mind, Herod is in trouble and disliked by the Jews in Jerusalem because he marries a princess of Jewish descent. Herod is not Jewish. He is not a Jew. Actually, he's an Edomite. So Herod marries her to legitimize his claim, even though Caesar granted him patent and right to rule Israel. The emperor gave him that right. He didn't need anything, but these people are so stiff-necked and so difficult they, he knew, Herod knew, that he needed to be seen as one of them, especially since he was an Edomite, those hated Edom, people of Edom. So he marries this princess who is beloved by the people, which will create all sorts of issues. Okay, any, any quick questions on this? Because we could spend weeks talking this through. I think I get lost in the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> right. But this is going to be important for the next point, which is Herod the Great. Because we have to get to understand this to understand why John the Baptist had to die. All right. So here we go. Here's Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, we just said, marries. Yeah, however. I can never say this name. Mari name. The great-granddaughter of Hyrcanus II, the founder of this royal line. Herod marries her. They have two children. Artemis, which we see is that name from the family, her family, not his. And Alexander, which that's the name from the Greek side, the, the other way. There, these two sons, um, really, they're, they're not that important. Um... But Herod the Great, we know, is the one that killed all the children because he wanted to get rid of Jesus. And the day he died, he had all these children killed as well, so there would be mourning for him as well. Uh, he was just—he was just warped individuals. So uh, his two sons, which um, he often had them killed because he thought they were plotting against them. We'll see that in a minute um, as he's doing. But these two have children. There's Herod Agrippa. We know that name, right? Herod Agrippa? Where do we know him from? Uh, we know him from Paul, for sure. Uh, we can see him in Acts chapter 12. Um, that's the Herod that uh, was trying to lay hands on those that were in the church. That's Herod Agrippa. Uh, then there's the Herod Herodias. That's a daughter. And um, she'll be part of the problem later on. 
And then there's Herod, who is the king of Chalas, which was a, another place, uh, another region of the area. Then there's um, Alexander's kid. He had a kid named Alexander. Don't be confused. <laughs> there's Tigris, Tigramnus the fourth, and he was the king of Armenia. What do you know about the Armenians? They hate the people in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And they have tried to exterminate each other going both ways. The Armenians, they've nearly been wiped out on multiple occasions by the Arabs. Well, here you go. They, he was, they're, they're, <laughs> they're half Jewish because of the, the relation. And their father was Herod. And the, the, there's so many ties between them and there. And then you add the Arabs and their, the hatred. See, this is all part of that Middle East. Right. The, the, the war's going on. Well, here's where it starts, folks. Right here with this guy being the king of Armenia. And he's got all kind of Jewish roots and descendants and, and stuff like that. So just put that in the back of your mind for something to Google later on. Um, okay, so we go back to Herod Agrippa the first. He had Herod Agrippa the second. Uh, he and his um, sister uh, Bernice... We know about them from Acts chapter 25. Um, they went and greeted Festus uh, at Caesarea. And there's a whole story about those two. Um, they often went together. Then there's also the sister Drusilla. I love that name, Drusilla. That's a great name. It sounds like uh, Cinderella's stepsister. Yeah, one of the <laughs> Well, she shows up in Acts chapter 25 as well. She was there with Felix, and uh, Drusilla is his wife, so married into it. Felix is one of the guys that tries Paul, um, and uh, there, there's all sorts of that. Uh, these guys have a couple as well. There's Tigranus IV, king of Armenia. So this is multiple uh, family members that are, are there. And Alexander, who is the king of Cilicia, uh, which is in that region. So there's all kind of ties in these regions from the nobility. So these guys are not well liked even then, because you know how the Jews hated Herod. And the, 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 yeah, when we say that the Middle East is in turmoil, it goes way back. These hatreds, they don't even know why they hate each other. They just do. <laughs> All right, so now that's Herod's first wife. <laughs> Quick questions. Okay. So then we look at Herod's second wife, and her name is the same. Oh, but she's the daughter of Simon. I, I don't know what it is with the name. Um, she's going to have... <laughs> just to annoy you. I can tell... I, it says nauseam. Um... I can tell you all about her. She was the high priest's daughter. Simon of Bothus is the high priest. Um, Josephus recounts him. So if you want to know who she was and her background, look it up in Josephus. I won't read the whole thing here. And they're going to have a son, Herod Philip. Herod Philip marries Herodias. We, we just talked about her, right? Yeah. That's the uh, daughter of the other one going back. Talk about your clerk. I mean, they, they, uh, so it, it's, uh, I guess it's a step sister, maybe a step uh, 
cousin, something like that. Anyway, they're going to marry. They're going to have a kid named Salome. And they ruled the northeast coast of Galilee. Oh, there we go. So Herod, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to rule there. Now, we know that Herod had some more wives. Let's move on. Next wife is the famous Cleopatra. And they're going to have a child. Philip, the Tetrarch, or inter, inter, uh, Interlumine. Um, Philip the Tetrarch is um, found in Luke chapter 3. He's talked about there. Um, he uh, plays a part in all this. All these people are all connected through the New Testament. You didn't even know it, right? And they're all related to Herod the Great. I mean, they're, yeah. Um, so that's, that's the only child they had. And Herod gets rid of Cleopatra, gets another wife. And uh, this one is Mal Malathias. And they're going to have a couple kids. And you're going to get, I, I can't Ar Archelaus. Archelaus. He's the ethnonarch of Judea, which is, an ethnolarch, Arch Elias is an eth, an ethnarch, um, which is less than king, um, and he's going to rule the area of Judea. It's going to be Samaria, Edomun, Edom, and those areas. So the areas that Jesus keeps traveling through, he's the guy that's ruling them, but he's not a king. Think of him like a duke, I guess. Something like that. He answers to the king. Alright? And then there's also Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, which we know him. He's the one that's causing all the problems that we're experiencing right now in Mark. He divorces the daughter of Arterius IV. He was a Nanabean king. The Nanabeans were in what we would think of as modern-day Jordan. They were right there along the, the, the coastal road of the Jordan River. I guess it's not a coastal road, river road. Um, they were along there. He divorces her and then marries his cousin Herodias. <laughs> so she comes back in again. I told you, it's like a bush. It's not really a tree. <laughs> um, and she's the one that convinces him to imprison John the Baptist. See, now we're right, we're right back in our story. All of this to get here. <laughs> Herodias gets um, uh, Herodias's brother. So she's got a brother, which we can go back and try and figure out which one of them was. Anyway, gets him to have Caligula, who is the emperor, to give him title and lands. And with that, he they those lands belonged to Herod Antipas, and then he charged him with uh, insurrection. So Herod Antipas is the one who's, who kills John the Baptist. After the fact, uh, he gets kicked out. Caligula thinks he's plotting against him because Herodias' brother has done this. So he could take over. He wants to rule Galilee. All right, so you, you, you're following me. All right. Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Wait, kind of. His brother, or her brother which I'd have to go back several slides, convinces him 
and this is Caligula, and he's plotting against it. Caligula was insane. If you've ever done a study on him, uh, Caligula was more than insane. He appointed his horse as a senator in the Roman Senate. I mean, that's how insane he was. He went out and had the, they were trying to build a bridge across to Africa from Italy, and the typhoon or hurricane wiped it out. He went down and had the ocean beat by a thousand soldiers with whips as punishment. I mean, that's, that, that's the mentality. Anyway, so Herod Agrippa is exiled. Anybody want to guess where he was exiled to? Israel? No. Huh? I was going to say where John? Nope. He's exiled to Gaul. Where's modern day Gaul? France. He gets exiled to France and spends the rest of his life trying to retake the land that was his in Israel, in the area of Galilee. Now, fast forward a few hundred years. Only about three. <laughs> and what, what do we have that starts then? The Crusades! What was the purpose of the Crusades? To take it back in. The Holy Land, yes! Where do you think they got that idea from? Because uh, France. <laughs> the French! Herod Antipas, all this is connected. Nobody puts this together and teaches this in school, do they? No. You learn about the Crusades. You don't do any church history and all. These people, he goes there. Wait, who do you think was ruling Gaul? Herod Agrippa, great-grandson of Herod the Great. All of this, there, there's so many connections. We come to we, we come to Israel and we look at it and we go, we're going to make peace. The Americans are going to do it. <laughs> we have uh, nothing. We don't even understand the connections, let alone the hatreds that go on. Do you think he was happy to be exiled by his brother-in-law? Lied about to the emperor? Yeah, no. Anyway, all of that so that we can look at what's happening. So John the Baptist has been exiled. And Jesus is, this just, this just happens, and this is what's going to happen here in a little bit. Anyway, come in a question. Yeah, I told wow, you. Wow, that must have been some course. <laughs> 16 weeks. You'd be amazed at what you can pack into a three-credit-hour course for 16 weeks. Yeah. All right, so let's look at the Gospel of Mark. Let's see where we're at now that we've gotten all this background so that we can look at the passages we haven't looked at yet. All right, Jesus' identity in action. We have so far looked at his authority. We are now looking at his compassion. Jesus is not only in charge and has authority. Everybody knows what authority looks like. We got Herod and all the iterations of him from his sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons. We know what authority looks like as they squeeze the people. Jesus shows up and he's got authority, but he uses it for the people. Now we're going to see his compassion. We didn't, cut, we didn't go through all. We looked at those stories really quickly as we passed through. Jairus, the woman with the blood issue and all that. And what we see is that Jesus has teaching authority. He has authority over demons. He has authority over health. He has authority over sin. He, has, he is authority of authorities in determining relationships and sinners and rituals and the Sabbath and all those things that, the, that they took as their own authority, the Pharisees. And he's the authority of them. They belong to him. And we saw that now he has authority over death as he heals Jairus' daughter. Well, it doesn't heal, raises her from the dead. As we look in his compassion, we see compassion in his teaching. The Pharisees, when they taught, 
would heap more rules and regulations and obligations on the people. And Jesus doesn't. He frees them from all this. So we see his compassion there. We see his compassion in the action as he heals people that aren't, were unhealable. Touches people that nobody would touch. We see compassion to his enemies even. He has compassion for the public, which certainly the Roman government didn't even care about the public. They, they didn't rule for the public, which is something that we believe in, that we took as the idea of freedom that our government serves us. The government served the, the emperor, and they didn't serve the people. And now we see in our choices, he has compassion in that as well as we look at this. So all of that brings us up to chapter 6. All right, everybody breathe. <laughs> Somebody now read for us chapter 6, verses 38 through 32. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Oh, there, so, no. I'm sorry. Did you finish? I thought you yeah. finished. No, I guess we're 32. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get with it, Ken. <laughs> and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. There we go. There we go. <laughs> they went on a missions trip. If you've ever gone on a missions trip, it's fast, it's furious, it's short, but it's exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> and you come back and you are exhausted physically because it's usually long nights or long days if it's a work trip it's hard work if it's um, uh, um, where you're just doing actual ministry mentally exhausting and there's this incitement with it right mm -hmm. and you want to share you want to tell somebody particularly if you were sent from your church and all that, and they want to know. They want to know how it went. And you want to share and all that. They're trying to do that. <clears throat> and the people keep showing up. Jesus, can you heal this? Jesus, can you heal that? Jesus, can you do this? Can you do that? Jesus, what about this? I mean, what if I got this question? They can't even eat. Jesus says, let's go away. Let's take a little vacation to a desolate place where there aren't any people. Hmm. Here's where they're going to go. I'll put my map back up here. So they come back to Capernaum. And they're going to go somewhere in that area. They're just going outside of town. They don't need to go far. A few miles. Um, to a desolate place. And this area is where Jesus does a lot of his teaching and a lot of his praying um, during his ministry up here. And so they're going to go there. And I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of this area because we drove through it numerous times. Um, there is nothing there. There's That's the Sea of Galilee. That's a substation for power. But I mean, there's, there's nothing out there. And you can see, we sit up a little higher, you can see the mountains there in the background. That's just around that curve of the map. Looking a little farther. I mean, doesn't they look desolate? I mean, this is modern day. There's nothing there. It's just an area. 
One of the areas that's in that circle that I just drew is where they, they think Jesus preached the Beatitudes. The Mount of Beatitudes, they call it. It is a desolate place. Here it is. We're sitting on top of the hill. There's the Sea of Galilee at the bottom. Um, the likelihood of there being anybody out there is slim to none. I mean, it, there's just nothing there. Even today, I mean, there's a, a chapel now. The monks of one of the, I think it's a Franciscan order, runs it because they think this is the mountain that he was on. But it's a desolate place. It was a place that he went. And the people followed him. Now, as we uh, quickly look at this, we see that Jesus recognizes his disciples are in need of rest. <clears throat> Somehow in our American culture and world, the idea of taking a break and resting, somehow we've got the idea that that makes us a sluggard. We took that, like Chris was talking, if you were in the service, Chris was talking about taking Proverbs out of their context. And we as Americans have done that. You know, the, the idea that you have to work continuously and, and all this, and there's no rest uh, and all that. And that's not true. We need rest. Jesus recognizes this. These disciples, these 12 come back to him. They're worn out. They're excited. They're overstimulated from all that's happened. They need a break. And Jesus says, you know what? Let's do it. Let, let, let's go. We're going to go camping out in the wilderness. And it'll just be us. It'll be nice. We'll have a chance to talk. We'll have something to eat without being disturbed. And all that. Long, hard terms of service require rest. The problem is, is that we often don't give it or allow it because we think of that as being lazy. I know too many pastors that think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take a vacation and I'm going to go on a trip and, and write my whatever. And they're, they're going to work, essentially. They're going to get all their sermons outlined for the next year or, or whatever. I, just the chance to get to eat was what they were looking for. Long, hard terms of service need rest. They need a time for debriefing because we cannot, for some reason, humans, we, we need to be able to process what we've experienced. And we do that by talking to other people and telling them about what happened. It allows us to do that. The same is true when we learn things. We process by going over it and talking to somebody else about it. So, you know, it's normal. Whether you're in school, whether you're in Sunday school, wherever it is, when it's something that is that interesting and deep and all that, it's normal to want to talk to somebody about it and explain it. Because you're trying to get a handle on the information. That's how it goes in the long-term memory. We need that time of debrief. And we need food and rest. I mean, that's just... Uh, we can't run on nothing. And being able to do that. And Jesus recognizes this. We need to recognize it in ourselves and in others that are part of ministry. All right, comment or question? All right, good, we'll move on. I told you it's a simple lesson, but there's so much in it. Even Jesus needed this. Remember, John has died. He's got to process that grief because he knows who John was. He understood John. He's got his own. Mark chapter 6, verses 33 through 34. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he had went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. All right, so here it is. We're going to go away. We're going to get time with Jesus. We're going to get a time to debrief, understand what happened, talk about what we did. We're going to get to eat. And the people, now you saw, you saw my pictures, right? It's just a flat area along the front of the lake. And these people are running to keep up with the boat to get there. And they get there ahead of him. It wasn't that far. Like I said, it's just a few miles. And they get there and it says a large crowd. How many people are we talking about? 5,000. Well, 5,000 men. So there's probably 10, 12,000 people. Your boat pulls up. You're trying to get away from the crowds. Your boat pulls up. There's 12,000 people cheering for you. And Jesus, we see, has compassion. There we go. In need of a response. These people are in need of a response from Jesus. He could send them away. Now, does that change the state that the disciples are in? No. No. Does it change the state Jesus is in as he's dealing with the loss of no. John the Baptist? No. But we see his compassion in there. I mean, can you imagine this? They're, they're in a boat, and they're, they can see the shoreline. And I'm sure you notice 10,000 people jogging yeah. along the road, along the shoreline. Oh, man. Keep going. Peter, keep going. 10,000 people running for... I mean, think about that. When we talk about 10,000 people, you're talking about a half a stadium, a football stadium on a Sunday afternoon. There are usually 30,000, 40,000 people in those stadiums. So, you know, maybe half of the stadium chasing after this boat. I mean, that's a lot of people. They're in a desolate place. There's nothing out They thought they would not have any people out here because there aren't any people out here. But look, there's 10,000 people out here. And finally, we see Jesus has compassion because that's who he is. Even in his state, when we talk about him being the God-man, he is fully man. He is tired. He is worn out. He has been ministering the whole time the disciples were gone, and he didn't have them to help, as well as the bad news. But there's that factor that he is God. And he sees the people, and we see the compassion of God. Even in his physical human exhaustion, he digs down to serve these people because that's what he came for. I was taught, like, part of the group um, going after him and all that, they were the disciples of John the Baptist. And, and they may they, very well have been. And they, they were very confused and lost and that they were part of that. And yes. To me, that kind of made sense. It's like, yeah, where would they go from here? He spoke of Jesus, so maybe they're like, are you... Are they're looking for a new... Well, he, I mean, Jesus quotes... Um, it wasn't Malachi. I can't remember. But the, the quote that he saw that they had no shepherd. And yeah, that, that's what... It, because this is what, this is what the leaders were supposed... The religious leaders were supposed to do. They were supposed to be the shepherds. But all they would do is heap more rules upon the people mm -hmm. to follow and more requirements and stuff. But Jesus doesn't. And he has his compassion. 
Now we're going to see his compassion play out. Mark chapter 6, 35 through 38. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. All right. <clears throat> we need some background to understand what's going on here. Now, we know the background of the disciples, right? Mm -hmm. What state are they in? Tired and exhausted. And hungry. Angry. Hungry. Angry. Probably, well, they're, they're probably angry at this point. Because this was supposed to be their time with Jesus. What are you people doing? And the day is late. When they say the day is late, they're talking about, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Because in Israel, you get 6 hours of daylight, or 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours. Remember, their day starts at 6. So 6 to 6 is the working hours, and then it's the evening. So they need to go find bread. And they say, how are we going to feed them? We need 200 denarii worth of bread. Now, a denarius was what? A day's wages. A day's wages. 200 days wages or 200 people working one day to, to have enough money to buy just a little bread. Now, I have a cool handout that explains the coinage at that time. I'm going to pass these around. Send some this way. I'll send some this way. These are the different coins. I'll put it up here so you can see. These are the different coins that were common in Jesus' day. The uh, bronze lepton down here, this little one, that's the one that Chris was talking about that the widow gave, the mite. This is what it looked like. It was a little bronze coin like that. You could buy a bath at a public bathhouse for that. That's about what it was worth. Um, we come up to the bronze purith. It was a common coin. It was 1 64th of a denarius. 164th of a day's wage. You could buy one third of a pound of bread with it. Now, I just so happen, I have a bronze fourth in my coin. I collect coins, it's my hobby. I have old and foreign coins from everywhere. I have in my hand a, uh, a, a coin. I'll show you in a minute um, this coin, but I have one so you can see this is actually from around 300 AD. Um, it was minted in Alexandria, Egypt. But give me a minute, and I'll pass it around. Um, then we have the silver denarius, which is the day's wage. You can buy 15 pounds of wheat with a basket for one of those. Then there's the silver half shekel. It's worth two denarius. The silver half shekel was the temple tax. And then there's the full shekel. Um, there, and you can see what you can buy with those. Um, a, a silver, a full-size silver shekel, you could buy a tunic, a liter of olive oil, two pound loaves of, or two 
one pound loaves of bread, half a liter of cheap wine <laughs> with one of those. You get like basically a full meal and some clothes. That's a lot. Now the denarius, which is what we were talking about, 200 of those <coughs> would buy, are you ready for this? 4,267 pounds of bread. So if you had 200 denarius and went to a town, you could get 4,267 pounds of bread. And that would not, 10,000 10, people, how far do you think that much bread's gonna go? Like half a pound, maybe. Not even a half a pound, which isn't that much bread. No. And it's just bread. Not a lot of bread. Um, and remember, we said that there's roughly 10,000 because we assume that there's 5,000 men, 5,000 women. There's probably, you know, 2,000 kids or more. There may even be more than that. So it's not going to go far, which is the calculations. Like you said, it's about a half a pound per person. The disciples didn't make a bad calculation, did they? The 200 denarii. Yeah. It'd be about 200 denarii just to give everybody a little something to eat. This isn't an exaggeration. I'm just showing you. These guys thought this through. This isn't just some flipping, you know, uh, thing that they're dragging out. They're 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 thinking this through, and uh, they don't know how to make this work. Now, let me uh, put this up, and I will pass this around. Please make sure this gets back to me. This is the coin that I'm holding in my hand. This is blown up images of it. Like I said, this is um, this was minted between 308 and 310 in Alexandria, Egypt. The image on it is Emperor Galerius, so we know about when it was. I'll let that uh, go around. You guys can look at that. It is really cool to have. You're bringing the down, town down. <laughs> One of those coins. Um, I acquired it as a gift for helping um, somebody. With, uh, they had a whole bunch of foreign coins, and they didn't know what to do with them. So I cataloged them for them so they could sell them. And they gave me this, which is really cool. So that's that's uh, that. Pass that along. This is uh, the bread. This is from the area of Galilee. We were there. They were making lunch. We think of a loaf. We think of uh, you know just a, a loaf of bread. But they didn't have loaves like we did. It's flat like that. They're big rounds. Um, and uh, that, this is a little video of. Uh, them making our lunch. This is what they would do with it. They would often put um, goat cheese on it, spread it around, and then this is a tzatziki, uh, zata. Sean. Uh, they would just wrap it up like that. What's zata? Zata, it's uh, olive oil, or sesame oil, and hyssop. I love it, I put it on all sorts of stuff. I don't know, there's other spices in there. Sumac. Sumac, that's it. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's just what they did with it. They just put it on like that and you would just eat it. And that was our lunch for the day. We'd eat it with cucumbers. Um, so that's what they're looking for. Is they're folded in half. So they're, they're about a half a pound. I mean, it's, it's heavy, thick um, bread, as you can see. So you're, you're looking at, they need, they need 4,000 of those rounds just to pass around and tear it up. They would use it as napkins to wipe their hands when they talk about, um, I don't know if we'll get to that passage. 
where the dog, the guy wouldn't eat the scraps off the floor because he, he fed it to his dogs. It's um, that sort. They would use these as napkins, and they would use them so they would, you know, as they're eating the meat because they're eating with their hands. They would wipe their hands on the bread. And they would throw it on the floor for the dogs to eat. And I guess it was Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus. The, the, the guy, the rich guy, wouldn't let Lazarus in to eat the bread off the floor. That's what they're talking about. This was the throwaway. Because they would use it. They would just sit in front of them, the breads, and they would eat over it like a plate or whatever. And then, you, you know, you'd eat it. But, you know, you'd wipe your face with it or whatever because you got juice everywhere. And you just throw it down and get another one. And That's what they're talking about, just to give you some context with that. All right, let's move along because I'm like already late. <laughs> yeah, you are. All right, yeah, I know. Um, so we see that they are in need of resources. So they were in need of rest, then they were in need of response. Now they're in need of resources. It's late, it's desolate, and there are too many people. How are we going to feed them? And Jesus turns it and says to them, well, do something about it. I mean, come on. You guys, I, I gave you power. Go do something. And they're like, okay, we've got money. We need at least 200 denarii. And uh, Jesus says, now go find out how much bread we got. Let's see what we have. And we have is two, two loaves. Two loaves and five fish. Right? Five loaves. Five loaves and two fish. I got a bad one. Yeah, I said something. Yeah, I know. And I just, yeah. <laughs> With some right numbers, they just did the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. Five loaves, two fish is what they're going to come up with. We're often in the same place. We're tired, in need of rest. And it seems that we get called on to do some more, do something else. And we don't have any resources. And we don't have this, and we don't have that. And this is what we're going to see here. This is what we learned in this lesson. We're never alone in this. Uh, come on. There you go. Matthew, or yeah, Matthew, listen to me. Mark, chapter 6, verses 39 through 44. Then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in the groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish and of the, of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. It is um, so amazing that this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Mm. Just to give you an idea uh, that the importance that this has as we look at this It is not the first time food is provided. The prophet Elisha multiplies the food for the people 
back in um, Kings. And if we go back a little farther, we see the multiplication of food from nothing for the people in the wilderness. And when they get tired of eating manna and call out for meat, <laughs> God multiplies quail in ridiculous quantities, till it was eating it until it came out their noses, as the text says. Interesting concept. <laughs> they were full. They were full. <laughs> they were full. But we, we come here, and the disciples have, they're, they're, what are we going to do? We, got, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. I got, we, we, we got these five loaves and these two fish, and they're surprised. When God does something, when Jesus does something, they've watched him literally raise somebody from the dead. They themselves have gone out and cast out demons and have healed people, and they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And then Jesus does something, and we don't even see it here because we're Westerners and we don't understand this culture. He looked up to heaven. The normal Jewish prayer is done in a bow. We don't look to heaven. That's something we as, as particularly Westerners, but as evangelicals that we do, we look to heaven to pray. But they did not because they understood they were under God and they would, and they would, they would bow. If we read through the Old Testament, anytime somebody came before the tabernacle or the temple, it was in, in, in to bow, to put face to ground. Anytime anybody showed up in the presence of God, as we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they, they're face planted. But here's Jesus. To make the blessing over a meal, you would put your hands out and, and, and look down over the meal and offer supplication for it. Jesus does it. He takes it and he holds it up to God and looks to heaven. To bless it. Anybody standing there that could hear what was going on would have been dumbfounded. This isn't normal. <clears throat> this is something different. And then he breaks it. Now we think nothing of that because of communion. Because of communion. But that wasn't how it was normally done. This is all being changed. All this is new as they're standing there. And I'm sure, remember the state. The disciples are exhausted. They're tired. They're unhappy. They've got to feed these 10,000 people. And now Jesus is doing everything wrong with the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, think about when you're hangry and tired. You don't want to have to think through and try and figure out something new. And they're watching as Jesus breaks it. Now, the interesting thing is I was doing my study this week. The idea that he broke the pieces and passed them out it isn't the, in the Greek there are tenses that we don't have in English one of them is the completed action, it's done it's finite it's final, finished he broke it, but in the Greek the word that he uses here is he continues it was going on forward he didn't just break it and hand it to him he kept breaking it and kept passing it out and passing it out and passing it out. Here, take this one. Here, take this one. You take this one. Here, take this. Go pass this out over there. And he keeps breaking it. So Jesus is working through this whole thing. I don't know how long it takes 12 men 
to carry enough food to feed 10,000 people. But Jesus keeps breaking it up and giving it and giving it and passing it out as he's standing there. And these guys keep coming back to him. All right, we need some more for that group. Okay, here you go. And he's doing it. That's what's going on here. Talk about labor intensive. <laughs> and it's Christ himself that's producing this miracle. I know that there, there are a lot of secular scholars who are like, yeah, they had the five loaves, they pressed it and everything, and everybody took out their own lunches that they were hiding because they didn't want to share because the disciples were going around asking for food to feed the people, and that's what they say happens. But that's not what is indicated when you read the Greek. He keeps doing it, making more food, coming from himself as he does it. So when he says he's the bread of life, <laughs> literally, he's breaking that bread and causing it to multiply in his own hands. I mean, there's just so much that's tied into this that when we look at this, it's recorded four times for us because this was something we needed to understand. It all flows from him. The tired, exhausted, hangry disciples are working to, to take it to everybody. Right? Just like they took the gospel. It never says that they actually eat any of it. Right. They collect the 12 baskets right? yep. at the end for themselves to eat. But their job is to go out into all the world to take <laughs> the, the message. To just keep going out and going out and going out. But they keep coming back to Jesus. You see how that works? Mm -hmm. Because he's the source of the food. So they get their basket all right, I need some more, Jesus. i got to go over here. I think we forget that. Because these guys are exhausted and tired. They had nothing of the, themselves to offer. They have to go to Jesus to get... There's so much tied into this as we see Jesus is going to talk about being the bread of life and the living waters that flow out of him. And we, all these teachings... And when we look, it's all wrapped up in this story. Because the disciples go and they nourish this group. And then they come back to Jesus and they get more nourishment. And they take that to another group. You know, if we think we can do it on our own, we're crazy. Because he's the source of all of that. I mean, if there's anything we take away from this is understanding. He's the source of everything we need. Finally, relief is given. They have found the needed resource. And Jesus blesses it. From the Father. The blessing came from Him. What's the conduit? Jesus. Jesus is the conduit of the blessing from the Father. It comes through Him. He's the one that God was pleased with. It isn't us. There's nothing we can do to get it. It doesn't come to us. It comes through Him. I find that interesting. People want to find it in other ways. Oh, all religions lead to God, right? It just just be be faithful in what you believe. Believe Buddha. Believe uh, Muhammad or whatever. <coughs> the blessing of the food came through Jesus. The Father sent it. He didn't send it through the disciples. The disciples weren't doing it. It's just Christ. You could not eat that day unless you ate the bread that Christ touched and broke. See, there's so many things that are, we learned in this <coughs> that are tied. 
the there was food there was food for all till they were full now understand what kind of people were chasing Jesus down sick people sick people <coughs> who else hungry people hungry people sinners sinners mostly poor yeah <coughs> poor people did not eat their fill on a daily basis likely the poor that were here hadn't had a full belly since the last wedding feast in town when everybody would be invited to eat whatever was provided most of the time they would get just a little something to eat especially beggars how many beggars did Jesus deal with and people that were sick were often beggars right? because they couldn't work these people sat and ate and ate and ate till they were full we think nothing of that because we got to get our three square meals a day we don't understand a world where you're you know you got a crust of a piece of bread and that was it for the day because somebody threw it to you as a beggar and that most of the ancient world was in that state because of illness because they were no place to work for this miracle to be this amazing we have to understand that and we see he even provides there's no waste they didn't throw it away they collected up there's a basket for each of them enough food for them to be filled the miracle is complete. Even the servant, serving disciples, end up with enough. That they are going to be just fine. Now any comments or questions? Go ahead. I was going to say, I never put it together that they had 12 baskets left over and 12 mm -hmm. disciples. Well, and that's, you know, we, we look at this story, and you, maybe, maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't. Who's included in all this? Judas. Judas was given power to go out and preach and teach. And he went out with somebody and he preached and taught and cast out demons. And he came back and he's there and he's one of the 12 serving all of this. And yet he's still going to be the guy that gives him up. Jesus, we, we, we often throw him under the bus, but he's all in at this point. He's working and serving and doing this part. All right, some things to take with us. Like you don't have enough already. <laughs> Let me give you some specifics and take with us. We should make sure we and others find rest. Yes, we have needs, and we need people to do stuff for us and all that. But there are times that we have enough, and we need to look at ways to make sure others can have rest. We need to feel, we need to feed souls with the truth of God's word. That's when Christ got out of the boat and had compassion on them. These were people who were lost and didn't know, didn't understand. He didn't get out of the boat and feed them. He didn't get out of the boat and heal them. He got out of the boat and did what? Yes, he got out of the boat and taught them truth. That's what they needed. And then they needed food, and he offers it to them. 
Third, we can look to God to provide when facing a challenge. Just because we can't figure out how to do it. If he's moving in you to do something, just say yes and do it. It may not make sense. You know, we talk about counting the cost and all that. That's one of those proverbs that gets used to not do what God wants us to do. Yeah, we count the cost, and then we look to God. The disciples counted the cost. 200 denarii. That's what it's going to take. And we don't have it. We don't have enough. And even that's not even enough. Jesus said, just go find out how much bread we have. And he made enough. We need to have faith. We need to, we need, if he's calling us, we need to look and figure it out. And third, or fourthly, we should find satisfaction when Jesus uses us. That should be satisfying. And we need to find our satisfaction there. Now the disciples are going to get their rest that they do need because they still need it. But they're going to have it with the satisfaction of a, of a job well done. And we should too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care enough to lead us and guide us and use us and give us the rest that we need and the resource to do it all. Lord, help us look to you for all our needs, to look to you for what we should be doing. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.